but it was, it was about a, a decade now that uh, I was with our oldest at the zoo. And uh, we remember the story a little bit different, but here's how I remember the story. And uh, we were over by the, uh, where the lions are kept, and we were uh, inside, and we were, went over uh, to the window, and there wasn't many people around us at the time, and the, the lion was way in the back, and it slowly just kind of came over and walked right up to the window. And suddenly, you know, all the people like came uh, over by the lion, and we had a front row seat. And the lion just stood there looking at, uh, at the crowd, and then out of nowhere, just these two massive, massive roars. And I just remember like looking at Tally afterwards. We were just like, did that just happen? It was incredible. I mean, those, the, the window itself is very, very thick. So, you know, you know, if you've ever tried to hit, knock on them, like it just, there's, it's super thick. But even with that thickness, it was so loud and you could almost feel it. Now, if you could imagine if that window wasn't there, uh, what it would be like to see a lion roaring out in the wild, that would be horrifying, yeah? Or it would be incredibly comforting depending on how your relationship is with the lion. If you're one of the predators or one of the prey, that's terrifying, because you know that lion is about to rip you apart. But if you're one of the cubs, and you belong to the lion, wow, I mean, this, this is good news. You got safety and comfort. Our passage today presents a lion in roaring fashion. Now, you might read that in Matthew 2 and say, I didn't, see no, I didn't even see any lion there. And that's true. We'll get to that. And hopefully, you'll see like, oh, yeah, of course, that's a lion. And uh, we're at, well, actually, we're just going to be focusing on verses 13 to 15 today. Uh, actually, a, a disputed pa- passage in, in some respects, uh, especially as the big question is, how, how is Matthew using Hosea? Uh, and we'll, we'll get to there, and you'll see what is, is going on. Um, the chapter 2 itself of Matthew is uh, organized around these five fulfillment, these prophetic promises, and all four, uh, f- all four of them uh, are centered around a geographical location. So we saw last week in verse 6 uh, is, is Bethlehem. The Davidic king would be born in Bethlehem uh, because he would be born in Bethlehem, he's from David, and he would shatter the enemies and shepherd God's people. But Bethlehem was the place uh, to look for him. Uh, next week, we'll see in verse 18 uh, that this voice from Ramah, uh, Rachel weeping for her children. And so we'll, uh, but it takes us back to a particular prophecy about Ramah, uh, this promise. Uh, and then ne- uh, the following week, which we're, or the following passage, I should say, because we're not actually going to get to this passage with uh, the EFCA, Scott being here next week, and then Danny being here from Pillar the following week. Danny might touch on this because it goes along with his sermon a little bit. Uh, but verse 23, about the, he shall be called a Nazarene. From, he's going to be from Nazareth. Uh, and then today we have Egypt. So all four of these prophetic fulfillments are centered around a geographical location. Uh, the question I would ask our passage today is, why was the son moved to Egypt? He was in Bethlehem. He gets moved to Egypt by God. Why, why does he get moved? 
And you really have two reasons. One, and they work together. The first one is just on the surface. Like if you don't even go back to the Hosea passage, just on the surface, we can get catch a reason. But if we dig a little bit deeper, we see a, a, a more rich theological purpose of why the sun was moved. But we'll start off with the, the surface one. Just if you were reading through Matthew, uh, there's a major question on your mind by the time you get to verse 12. Uh, if you've never heard the story, and the question would be something along the lines of the safety of the child. If you knew anything about Herod, as we talked about last week, he was not rational. And once he heard that there was someone born king of the Jews, he was threatened, right? And so you knew that he was about to do what he could to get rid of this child. Uh, in fact, we see that happening in our passage and the following uh, passage. So there's some sort of a question surrounding the reader. What's going to happen with the child? Is the child going to be safe? I mean, a child's helpless. You're talking about Herod, the most powerful man in the land. He's going to come after the child. How's the child going to survive this? And of course, on God's timetable, things had already been set up, right? I mean, God, God knows what's happening. Uh, and Verse 13, uh, Joseph is met in a dream uh, when they had departed. Uh, these are the, the wise men uh, departed. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, because Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now, if you can try to picture... Briefly, the scene, you know, uh, Joseph is not, this is the first he's learning about Herod coming to search for the child. So this is now he's visited in this dream. And uh, my guess is he probably doesn't go back to sleep, right? He wakes up from the dream and he's like, well, I don't want to bother Mary. Let, let her sleep. He, he probably jumps out of bed and he's just been met with this angel saying, Herod's coming after the child. You need to get out of here right away and go to Egypt. My guess is he woke her up, and uh, I got to applaud Mary uh, for, you know, I, my first thought would be like, God, Joseph, what'd you eat last night? I mean, come on. You know, you probably had too much sugar or something. You were just having some weird dreams or whatever. But to, to take Joseph and say, yeah, let, let's get out of here. It says they went by night. My guess is they took off right at that moment, knowing who Herod was. Yes, that's, that's, that's true. It's accurate. He, he's probably coming after. Plus, they'd probably been uh, told by the wise men that uh, they had been visited uh, by a divine dream or divine uh, visitation to tell them to, to depart a different way. I'm guessing the, the wise men would have told them that. Uh, but nonetheless, then we read verse 14. They arose, they took the child and his mother, and by night they departed for Egypt, and then they remained there until the death of Herod. And most likely, that's what those gifts were for as well, uh, that the wise men had brought, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, not only were they royal gifts to a superior, but now Joseph and Mary, uh, needing to flee to Egypt, where it, they're remaining there for a time, uh, actually will be prepared, uh, cared for now, right? They have ability to sell the gold, frankincense, and myrrh to make the trip. But on the surface of this, if you just ask why move the child to Egypt, it's simply because God is, God's plan cannot be thwarted. God, this child is on a mission, Right? We were told in chapter 1, he shall be, bring the forgiveness of sins to his people. This is God with us. God is on a mission, and it can't be thwarted by Herod. Right? This is God's mission, not Herod's. Right? So just simply on the surface, we say, well, he was moved to Egypt to preserve the child. Because he has a mission that must be completed. And this is on God's timeline, not Herod's timeline. 
And this is great news for us, right? I mean, if you're just simply thinking about that reality of how God is on a mission and nobody can thwart it, that is fantastic news, right? And this is a theme that goes throughout Scripture, and we just see it displayed here. Psalm 2, you might remember that psalm, where the, the kings of the earth take their stand against the anointed and against God. And what does God do in response? He laughs. He laughs at them. He scoffs at them. No king in the land is powerful enough to thwart God's mission. It cannot happen. Or Luke chapter 4, when Jesus begins his ministry and he is preaching in the synagogue, they, they get upset, and so they take him to the, the brow of the hill, it says. They're ready to throw him off the cliff to, to kill him right at the beginning of his mission. And what happens? The text just says he turns around and walks right through the crowd and goes. Man cannot thwart the mission of God. And that's great news. Joseph's brothers try to, to off him, and what does that do? It actually advances the mission of God. Right? They, they try to destroy Daniel, and what does that do? It advances the mission of God. And brothers and sisters, that is great news to know that we go into the week, we go into the month, the year, with God is the one who sets the agenda, not us, not our bosses, not the mayor, not the president. It doesn't matter what regime is over our country. God is the one in control, and we don't hope in our land, we don't, nor are we terrified of, of the government. God is the one in control. That's great, great news. It's great news for you planners out there, because uh, the older you get, the, the more you realize your plans never work, right? And it's good to know that that maybe God has a better plan than you have anyways. This is great news for those of you who worry, right? You're worried about what's to come next week. You're worried about the next doctor's appointment. You're worried about your health a year from now. You're worried about your kids and what their schooling's going to be like. You're worried about your finances when you're older. You're worried about this and that and this and that. And yet uh, you cannot thwart the mission of God. And that is great news for us who know we live in a dangerous and scary, unstable world. This is meant to bring stability to us. That God is on a mission, and even Herod, the most powerful man in Israel, cannot end it. So that's uh, on the surface. You still have to ask the question, though, why Egypt? Right? Uh, I mean, you could say, well, Egypt, because that was outside of Herod's reign. You know, Herod reigned over a region as the Roman government had given him authority. So Egypt was outside of that uh, jurisdiction. And that's true, but so was Gaza. And Gaza was actually a lot closer. So was Moab. Moab was outside of his reign, and so was Edom. And those were closer. So why Egypt? Why would he have to go to Egypt? Well, on the surface there, I mean, he answers that, right? Verse 15, he, uh, he remains there uh, until the death of Herod. This... Egypt was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. So on the surface, then, it's to fulfill uh, this prophetic promise, or you might say to uh, proclaim it in visual form, that he's actually going to walk the path of Israel and proclaim a message that comes from Hosea. So we need to jump back to Hosea, Hosea prophet, uh, in the Old Testament, so if you have your Bibles, why don't you jump back there. Hosea chapter 11, the first of the minor prophets. So it's really not that far back. If you're seeing Jeremiah, Isaiah, keep, keep going forward towards the New Testament. Ezekiel and Daniel. 
And then we meet Hosea. A little background on Hosea. He, his, uh, if you were here last week, I mentioned that the, the call of a prophet uh, wasn't always easy. Uh, a lot of people didn't like you. They, a lot of the prophets got killed to begin with. Uh, but then, of course, if you remember the, uh, the jackal last week, uh, Micah walking around howling like a jackal uh, as a way of proclaiming to Israel, this is, this is what is going to be for you. You are going to be like a jackal howling in mourning. Uh, Mike, or Hosea also was called to live out the message to the people. And you might remember the, the opening chapters of the book of Hosea. God comes to Hosea, the prophet, and tells him to go marry a prostitute. Because his, and, and then tells him that his wife, Gomer, is going to have children that aren't actually Hosea's. Because as the, the harlot, she's going to then continue to run off to other men. And Hosea is supposed to remain married to her. And so, I mean, this, this is a hard call for the prophet. And the, the point that is meant to be proclaiming to the culture is, Israel, you are Gomer. God has loved you and poured his affection on you and cared for you. And you continue to run after other lovers. And God continues to come after his people. And so the call of Hosea is, is uh, astonishing. And, and by the time you get to chapter 11, uh, the message we see here, I, I mean, I would love to hear him preach chapter 11. Because we get a window into God's heart that is just unbelievable. The, most of the book is, is, is all about how Israel is going to be sent back into exile. So throughout the book, you keep getting this return, this pointing back to the first exile and, and first exodus into Egypt. And then Hosea telling Israel, it's going to happen again. You're going back into exile, which is right out of Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. God had continuously told his people, if you continue to reject me, I'll, I'll make the sky bronze and, and your, 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 your soil won't produce crops for you. And if you don't repent, then I'll bring other people from other lands to come eat, eat your crops. And if you don't repent, then I'll bring other lands to come and oppress you. And if you don't repent, eventually I'll kick you out of the land. And so Hosea is right in line with Moses in that respect. But then we get to chapter 11, and we come to our, what Matthew is quoting in verse 1, where he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, there's a couple hang-ups that people have right away when you see what Matthew just quoted, and you come to Hosea 11, verse 1. And the two major ones, there's, there's a couple more, but the two major ones is, first of all, uh, Matthew is applying this statement to Jesus, individual. Hosea is talking to, about a country, a nation, right? Israel. So that's the, the first hang-up. Second hang-up, then, is Hosea is speaking about a past exodus. He's not pointing to the future at all. He's, he's talking about what happened in the past. How in the world can Matthew be saying that Jesus is filling what Hosea was talking about when Hosea wasn't even looking future. Now, I, I actually think those are there's very simple answers to that, those questions, um, which we'll get to. I think the second one, um, I, I think we should at least deal with right away. Uh, I, when, when you come across a passage and the author is quoting from the Old Testament, one of the first things to do is to go back to the whole passage of 
of the the prophet or of whatever he's quoting, uh, like like we did last week with Micah. Uh, you might think of it this way: uh, if you you know uh, Starbucks has, uh, I think it's uh, Starbucks for Life going on right now. If you if you if you go to Starbucks, uh, my oldest does all my phone stuff for me, so she plays the game for me to see if I can win stars and prizes and stuff like that. So they do this like every like Christmas season or whatever. So it's the the stars for life or Starbucks for life, whatever it is, you could win Starbucks forever, right? Anyhow, suppose like she played this game for me and I, I get this email that says, congratulations, you've won big. Here is your prize. And the here is your prize is this, you know, on this little tab that if I put my mouse over it, it goes from the pointer to, uh, you know, the, the little arrow pointer to, to the little hand right? That I know that this is this little tab that I can link, click on it, right? If I click on the tab, where's it going to take me? It's going to take me to this other page. Now, wouldn't it be totally absurd if I, if I took a picture of, well, it took me to this other tab, and I took a picture and clipped out this statement that said, here's your prize, because that's exactly what the, 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 the link is quoting, this line. So here's your prize, and I hung that on the wall. Look at what I got. Isn't that amazing? It would be absurd. Because what you do is you go, you see the header, and then I read what I want. I, I just won 50 stars. I want a free drink. Right? You read the whole message because that's what it's taking you to. And so when we, when we see a, a passage like this, and Matthew quoting from this, we have to go back. It's the author is just simply introducing you to the, the passage itself. You know when Jesus says, uh, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says that from the cross. It's the very first line of Psalm 22. He's not, most likely, he's not only simply quoting verse 1. He probably either said the whole psalm, or at very minimum, as the reader, you're supposed to hear the whole message of Psalm 22. And actually, when you read the psalm, there's several statements that center around the crucifixion. And you're supposed to catch the whole thing. So I think once you go back to the whole of Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 11, and hear the message of the prophet, it makes perfect sense exactly what Matthew is doing. So let's do that. Let's look at Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. And it, it breaks up very simple for us into three sections. The first section is from verses 1 to 4. And I think you could sum it up saying, by, by saying this. Uh, God gathered his people in the first exodus. So read this, verses 1 to 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning off offerings to idols. Yet it was I... God saying, I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim, again, is the, the northern country. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. So a couple different word pictures here. We'll just even just take a look at one of them. Uh, there verses, in verse 3, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Here's, here's the picture of God. You know, some of you have young kids yet, and you kind of stand behind them. You grab their hands, and you kind of 
You just walk them along, and you're teaching them how to walk. This is the picture that God is giving. Like, I, I went and I gathered Israel out of Egypt. I brought them out of slavery, and I taught them as a little baby how to walk, how to move. They're mine. Okay, I think you can just sum up this first section. God gathered his son or his people in the first exodus. So he is pointing back to this past event. This is how Israel became a people. They're my people. I'm the one that birthed them. I brought them to be my son, my people. The second movement then is verses five through seven, where God says, because of Israel's ongoing rebellion, they are going to go to another exodus or another exile. I brought them out of exile through an ex- like exodus, bringing them out of exile. But because of their rebellion against me, they're going to go to exile again. Okay, verses 5 to 7. We can read it now. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. That's not good news. Israel, is, God's supposed to be their king. Assyria, the, 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 major, um, the major enemy, uh, the superpower of the time, Assyria is going to be their king because Israel refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people, they are bent on turning from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. This is God's way of saying their exile is certain. Even though they call out to me, it's just mere lip service and I will not answer anymore. They refuse to turn to me, and now they're going to another exile. Okay, so the movement again is, I I gathered my son in the first exodus. I brought them out from from exile, the the Egyptian uh, exile, and I brought them to be my people. Second movement then is, but because of the rebellion, they're going to another exile. It will be Egyptian-like. Notice how it says that in verse 5. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. He's linking these two together. It's it's this this Assyrian exile that's coming. When Assyria comes and takes Israel out of the land, it's going to be Egyptian-like. Because he's using the first exodus as a picture of what's to come. Now, this is not unique to Hosea. Uh, Other prophets do this as well. You're using a major event from the past to say it's going to be something like that. This is a, a pattern of, uh, of, of history that's going to repeat. So again, first movement, first exodus, exodus, or the first exile leading to exodus, God brought his son out of Israel, or out of Egypt. Now, because they've re- rebelled against God continuously, he's sending them back to Egypt, but it won't be Egypt, it will be Assyria, it will be Egyptian-like. All right, a second exile. Third movement, then, is that Just as certain as that Egyptian exile or Egyptian-like exodus or exile is certain, so also is there a certain exodus that will be Egypt-like. Okay, Again, history is going to repeat itself. So verse 8 to 11. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, 
the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. You see that? And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Now notice here in 10 and 11, a couple of contrasts. Up, up above in verses, uh, what do we got? Chapter of verse 2, verse 3, verse 5 to 7, you have all this language about them not returning. They, they did not turn to the Lord. Here in 10 and 11, they will go after the Lord. They will come to the Lord, right? And notice again the connection, verse 11, of, with Egypt and Assyria. This, this return to the Lord, their coming to the Lord, will be Egypt-like. It will be just like you came out of Egypt. Back, I brought you into, to, I gathered you as my people from Egypt. It will be like that once again. So that's what he's telling his people. Just like I brought you the first exodus, I will bring you back to me in the second exodus, or this future exodus. When Assyria is taken, I will come and bring my people to myself. And how is he going to do that? But he's going to roar like a lion. Now this imagery of a lion is actually used two other times throughout the book in verse 5 and verse 13. And both times when it's used outside of this chapter, the lion is terrifying because the lion comes and rips everything apart. And he speaks of that of Israel. But here, here just as the judgment of God on Assyria or on Israel is certain, and the, the exile will happen. That's not the end of the story. God will also bring his people back and be a lion that calls his cubs to care for them, comfort them. He will regather his people. And so I think when, when Matthew then links back to this, uh, you're not just supposed to read verse 1. You're supposed to hear the lion roaring from Egypt. In him walking the path of the first exodus, Jesus as the child, you're supposed to hear this, the new exodus is here. The promise that, that Hosea made of a, a new exodus happening, of a, the people who got sent out to Assyria coming back, which never actually happened, is finally here. The lion is roaring, calling his people back. Now to judge with or, or to deal with the, the first problem of how does Matthew say this about Jesus when it's actually about Israel uh, there's this, this thing that happens, it's common throughout the Old Testament, of what you might call, some would call corporate solidarity, or to say it more simple, uh, the one and the many. Where the, the one represents the many. Uh, so we see this in Isaiah, right, about the servant. At times, the servant is spoken about Israel. And then, of course, we get to that very famous passage, Isaiah 53, about the servant, the, the one. But what's true of the one is then true of the whole because there's the, the, the one represents the whole. And so I've always liked the definition of, of, of this corporate solidarity, the one and the many, the, the way the authors do this is it's the, the oscillation of representation. And the authors will do it in the same breath. At one point, he'll be talking about the whole, the whole corporate, and he'll just slide over and talk about this one figure that what happens with the figure, if he, if he is victorious, then the whole is victorious. If he's sinful and, and a plague is going to come because of him, like David, then the whole is going to be affected. And here, uh, then Matthew 
linking back to Hosea, is saying the true Israel, the one who represents Israel, the true Israel has come and he's roaring like a lion to gather God's people back, which means the true Israel is not speaking of a nation. It's speaking of Jesus and then all who are in Jesus. Because Israel then is not made up of this, this birth that you're born into Israel. It's that we who are under the blood of Christ are the true Israel of God. And so I would, I would sum up then Hosea as saying, though Israel will experience an Egypt-like exile, God will bring an Egypt-like exodus, a new exodus. And Matthew then is declaring with the movement of Jesus that that new exodus has come. God is gathering a new people for himself. He will teach them how to walk. He will care for them and be their God. Now, you might ask the question of why? Why would God do that? Well, I, th I think we have one of, the, one of the most beautiful pictures here of God. Uh, this is this little window of God's heart of what he thinks about his people. And I, I think actually one of the more unfortunate things when, when this, the whole discussion of this passage gets so centered around verse 1 and we miss this gold here in verses 8 through 10 or 8 through 11. So if verses 5 and 7 declare that, yes, Israel is going into exile, God will bring his judgment. And it's just. It's good. God is a loving God. He's good. He's faithful. He's faithful to his law. And he's a good judge. He will certainly bring judgment. But look at the way he, we get this little window of like God using language that we can somehow try to grasp of, of the way God thinks about his people. Verse 8 then again. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How, how can I make you like Adma and treat you like Zeboim? Adma and Zeboim were, they were cities that were next to Sodom and Gomorrah. If you read the Genesis 19 account, when God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, it actually says, in the surrounding region. And uh, Adma and Zeboim were surrounding cities that were overthrown when so Sodom was destroyed. And um, what God says then, uh, my, my heart recoils within me. He uses this word for recoil that the ESV translates. It's the same uh, word that's used in Genesis 19 three times to describe Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding region being overthrown. And so it's, it's as, as God, again, pointing back to that historical event and saying, how can, how, can I, how can I overthrow you to utterly destroy you forever the way Adma was utterly and totally destroyed it's overthrown. And then he turns and says, it's my heart that's being overthrown. I'm the one recoiling. Just as they were overthrown, it's now me. Because that's the way I feel about my people. It pains me. I can't utterly destroy them. Now, again, this is why I would, I would love to hear Hosea preach this. Because... Here's a man who's just been married to this woman who's been unfaithful to him, unfaithful to him, unfaithful to him. And somehow he's supposed to continue to love her. And the reality is, is some, there's a human love that just has limits. We just we run out at some point. And, and look at how God continues. My compassion, it grows warm. It grows tender. 
I will not execute my burning anger. He has it. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. Why? Because I'm God and I'm not a man. I love that statement. This, this is not saying my, my love is just better than you. It's, just, it's, it's like a human love, but on a, a, you know, a couple levels up. This is God saying, the, the, the love that I have, it's just of a totally, utterly different category. It's on a totally different plane. This is why like the, the Apostle Paul, right, in Ephesians 3, you remember, he, he prays that, uh, that, that you may know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding. Like, there, there's a love of God that you, you cannot grasp. It's almost as if to say that for the passage that, uh, that if you think you understand God's love, by definition, it means you don't understand it. Right? The, the reason I love this way, he says, is because I'm not like you. Now, I don't think that's meant to say that, that you guys don't, your love is crummy. You don't know what you're doing. It's actually, I think, to, to meant to take one of the most powerful things in the world is a, is a parent's love for a child and say that that's the, that's the closest you can get to understanding. And even that is so far, so far separated from my love for my people. There's that passage in Isaiah that talks about the mother nursing the child, if you, if you recall this. This is the image that uh, Isaiah uses. And he, he says, it's, it's more possible that the mother would, would forget about the child who's nursing. That somehow just go on life. I forgot I had a child. Uh, it's nursing right now. But he says, yeah, it would be more likely that that would happen than I would ever forget my people. He, he's trying to grab some of the most powerful things that you could possibly think of and say it's something like that. Just a little bit. That's the best you can do. This, this, you're talking about a beyond human imagination love that God has for his people. It just simply cannot be described. Now, I, I find one of the difficulties with this then is uh, just even like going like, okay, this, then how in the world am I supposed to communicate this? One, because I feel like I don't even under, I don't understand the content in some sense here, right? It's, it's, this is the love that God has for His people that is beyond human imagination. But also, then I, I don't know my own heart, let alone you, all of your hearts, of how how you need to hear that God loves you. I heard Paul Washer uh, once say that, that the hardest thing for a Christian to do, which I, I think is a strong statement here, but he reiterated several times, the hardest thing that you will ever have to do as a Christian is to, one, understand your sin more clearly, because the more you understand about your sin, the more clarified it is, and the more horrifying it is, the deeper it is, and the darker it is. And then also believe that God actually loves you. Because the more you're exposed to your own heart, the Apostle Paul, at an old age, saying, I am the chief of all sinners. Not I was. I am the chief of all sinners. To, ex to experience the darkness of your own soul and then also hold on and say, and yet God still loves me that way? 
So I just, I just felt like I'm in such a loss that how am I supposed to explain this? And that's the best I could do. So I don't, I don't, I don't have anything else. But I did think about what, when do I taste this? When, when I taste the love of God for me, how, do, how does that shape my life? Or how does that reshape my life? Just trying to see, how, is there a way that can I, I experience the world when I can actually taste it on some uh, deeper level? And so here's, here's ways that I think about when, uh, when, I, when I feel like I, I'm tasting the love of God in a real tangible way. Not perfectly, but in a good direction. When I can taste the, the, the true, deep love of God, I think legalism does not make as much sense as it often does. So legalism, the idea that, I, that by my performance in life, I can either get God to like me or keep God to like me, right? Whether I'm reading my Bible or I've had a good day with my family, I haven't, you know, I haven't spoken harshly or I, I've done well at work or I've you know, had a good time of prayer. Like the, the, all these performance things that we tend to do where we think we keep God liking us, when I truly understand the love of God, who looked at his people that were like Gomer and way worse, that continuously rebelled against God, the way that I rebel against God constantly and look to things of the world to, to find hope and satisfaction, and yet God still loves me, legalism just does not make sense. So I begin to be free from legalism. And on the other side of the coin, licentiousness doesn't make sense. Licentiousness uh, is the idea that because God's grace is for me or God has forgiven my sins, I now have license to live how I want. And that equally makes no sense. If I've realized that almighty God, my maker, who, who I deserve to be judged by and cast into utter damnation forever, has poured his love on me, why would I want to go away from him? Why would I want to go seek joy and hope in anything else? And the, like the Apostle John says, that the law of God is not burdensome. It becomes a delight. I, I want to follow. He, by golly, he, he must know what's right for me. And he must only be looking out for my best when he gives me a command. Even if my emotions don't feel like I want to do what he says. Like He must love me enough to tell me what's good for me. And so licentiousness does not makes sense to my heart when I actually experience the love of God. Or if I'm living in the, in the good of the love of God, uh, looking to the world for contentment also doesn't make sense. I, by f far more than I care to um, admit, or and by far more than I am aware of, I look for my hope, my significance, my security in life uh, through things in the world. Sometimes through comfort, sometimes through materialism, sometimes and probably most often through reputation. I want people to like me. I want people to applaud me. I want people to accept me. And that, that's enslaving, right? Because then I'm always living for the opinion of other people. I'm always wondering how people think of me. And when someone's critical of me, I, it, I have a hard time receiving that because then I'm like, is that, what is that saying about their, with how they think of me? And it's enslaving. But if I can taste the love of God, to know that I'm accepted and cherished and cared for by Almighty God, then, you, you know, that old song says, um, 
turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and then the things of earth will grow. Wait, how's that go? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Perfect. The things of earth grow strangely dim. Those things that I once thought could provide hope and joy, they just, they don't have that appeal anymore. When I can taste it. And I, that means, like, when I'm chasing after it, I, there's something about a disconnect of actually experiencing and tasting the love of God. See, the, the, see experiencing the love of God and tasting it and dwelling on that, letting that drip into my soul is part of the remedy, then, of fleeing legalism, fleeing the, the allurement of the world that has such a tight grip. Or worry and fear. What place does that have? If I know that Almighty God loves me, and is wise and good and faithful, and he's, he's the one that's promised that everything, no matter what happens, will, will turn out for my good, why would I worry about tomorrow? Like, I have such, the most irrational things come to my mind about tomorrow. They're totally irrational, but even if they came true, that cannot separate the love of God that he has for me, right? The, the wonderful passage, Romans 8, right? What will separate us from the love of God? Shall, shall famine or tribulation or persecution? And he's got this list of the, seeming the indication to be that when we experience those things, we begin to wonder, are we separate from the love of God? And he says, no, in the midst of those things, in the midst of those, we are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so why do we worry? But on the flip side, I, my, my desire to commune with God increases. My desire to uh, risk for the cause of the kingdom, to serve Christ Jesus. And I increase in compassion and love for other people. Right? If I'm receiving the love of God, how can I turn around and then lack patience for other people? So you lack patience, you lack compassion for other people. One of the great remedies is to receive first the love of God. And drink deeply at that fountain so I actually have something to offer other people. And so I, my prayer for us was, it was simply right, right from uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.5 where, where the, the benediction where, uh, where Paul says, may, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God, the steadfastness of Christ. There's a, our hearts have direction, and this is asking God, direct our hearts to your love. Help us to see it. Help us to taste it. Just one more drop. And how much more free would we be? May God grant us to experience that this week. This is a great passage to meditate on. The last question to be answered then, though, is, is how? Is so God's going to bring this new exodus, gather his people again into Jesus to make his people. And he's going to do this because of his great love for his people. How can he do it? How? I mean, look at verse, verse 10, uh, no, uh, verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. So God still has anger towards sin. So how, how can he just then gather new people that he loves if he still has the anger? Well, that's where you have to keep reading the rest of the story of Matthew, right? See, God was going to preserve the child to fulfill the prophetic promise of the mission that the child was on, to gather his people. But in order to gather his people, it meant that this child first 
had to undergo death himself and to receive the judgment of God, to be the one who received the anger of God, the just wrath of God, and so that God can actually gather his people in love. You see, justice was poured out, just wasn't poured out on us. It was poured out on the child as the story continues so that God can gather us in the new exodus, in the son, that we can be his people And with that, we turn to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper reminds us that the promise of God roaring like a lion to gather us as his people because of his deep love for us, we stand securely on that, not because of us, not because we look at how much we love God. If we did that, we'd all crumble. But because we look at the death and resurrection of Jesus, his blood poured out on our behalf, that has secured this promise for us. 